We find ourselves this morning in Luke chapter 4, going to be looking at verses 16 to 30. Story about Jesus' early ministry. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke, spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is God's holy word, and we receive it with thankfulness. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Uh, We pray that you would give us ears to hear, minds to understand it, and hands to obey it today. God, we thank you that you sent your son to proclaim freedom, and we pray that we would find hope in his name today alone. And it's for his name we pray. Amen. Friends, we've had quite a year, haven't we? Um, There's been a lot of great things that have happened this year, babies that have been born, um, marriage, marriages that have come together. Uh, There's been a lot to celebrate this year. And at the same time, it's been a very painful year. Our year started with a conflict in Ukraine that's impacted the entire world over, even leading to the loss of countless lives, but also leading to many other consequences that we haven't even been noticing, like global food prices hitting an all-time high as a result of the conflict in Ukraine. Our year has been bookended in our own nation by two mass shootings, one in Uvalde, Texas, and one in Colorado Springs. Uh, 
Tech entrepreneurs have been arrested or convicting for swindling billions of dollars. In June, an earthquake in Afghanistan and Pakistan killed 1,163 people. 1,163 people that didn't go home to their families that day. Over 1,000 moms and dads and sons and daughters who were gone from the world in an instant. It's been quite a year that we've had. And how could we ever begin to function when that's what our world looks like? When that's what life in this world is like, how could we even begin to operate as functional human beings? And the answer to that question is because God is the only one who can do something about all of this tragedy and all of this suffering. And Christmas proves that he's going to. So whether the pain that you've experienced this year has been more cosmic and international, looking at all the suffering in the world, or if it's been very personal, looking at all the suffering in here, in your own life, Christmas boldly proclaims hope in the midst of vast suffering around the world. Because Jesus came to free his people from all suffering by his own suffering. Jesus, in his love for you, gave himself on the cross to set you free from suffering forever. And that's how he began his ministry in Luke chapter 4. The main thing I want you to take home today is that Jesus came to save his people from all suffering. And we're going to see that idea spun out as we answer three questions as we walk through Luke chapter 4 together. Three questions about Jesus' coming. The first one, what did Jesus come for? And the answer, he came to put a stop to unjust suffering. So again, the passage begins, and Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And so the cultural practice in this day is that Jewish synagogues were placed all over the Roman Empire, and so Jewish people would gather together on the Sabbath day, and a visiting rabbi who would travel from synagogue to synagogue would step up, he would take the scroll, he would take the scriptures, someone would help him unfold it, the rabbi would read an assigned portion of scripture for that day, and then he would sit down, and he would proclaim a sermon. He would give the interpretation, and that's what Jesus does here, because he's a visiting rabbi. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it, where it is written. So then here's the reading for that day. This is what Jesus is reading and is going to preach on. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is from the Old Testament, from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Well, that's surprising. The poor hearing good news. The poor are destitute. They don't get a lot of good news in this world. 
In our culture, there's a lot of welfare and, and aid that's given to the poor. Not so in this culture. To be poor was to be destitute, was to be hungry, was to be starving. And this, this servant of the Lord is coming to proclaim good news to people in those circumstances. To proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Like I said, this reading is from Isaiah chapter 61. And the second half of the book of Isaiah in your Old Testament tells a story of a suffering servant, a suffering servant who was appointed by God to come and set God's people free from their oppressors, specifically by suffering in their place. He's a servant of the Lord, but he's a suffering servant. The suffering servant. And for an Israelite in the first century, the suffering servant was one of the characters that they placed all of their hope on. They were looking forward to this suffering servant that God had promised would come to them to set them free, to save them, to stop all of the horrible suffering and insanity going on in their world. Because just like it is today, with genocide and and earthquakes and and expensive food and thieves running around the world and often winning, the first century, Jesus' day, the world was full of suffering. And the Israelites were actually, uh, uh, um, they they were taken over by foreign oppressors, the Roman Empire. So they didn't even have some freedoms. And so in the midst of that culture, the Jewish people were looking for hope. And they believed that hope was going to come from this suffering servant. And so this would have been a famous passage, a favorite passage. And so they unroll the scroll, they read the passage, and some people would say, oh, nice, we're going to hear about this one. We're going to hear some good news today. We're going to hear hope, and I need hope. And so Jesus reads this passage about the suffering servant who came to end all suffering. And then it was time for the sermon. And so in that day, the whole crowd would stay standing and the rabbi would sit down. He's like sitting on a throne. He's speaking with authority. He would sit down and he would give the sermon. And Jesus goes on and preaches one of the shortest sermons in the world history. Some of you uh, wish that your preachers would learn from Jesus in this way. But he rolled up the scroll, verse 20, he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. You could hear the drop of a hat in this room. Everybody needs some hope and they need to hear what Jesus has to say about this. Everybody's eyes are fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's Jesus' sermon. He comes in. He reads this passage. This passage that all of Israel had been hoping for and setting their hopes on and saying all of the suffering in this world is going to come to an end because this servant is going to come and make things right again. And what Jesus is saying here 
is he's saying, friends, the servant has arrived. What Jesus is saying, he's making the absolutely insane claim that the hero that Israel had been looking for for hundreds of years had arrived. And it was him. He was the hero. He was the suffering servant who was coming to end all injustice forever. I want you to notice something about this passage that Jesus read from Isaiah 61. And that's, there's a number of reversals in that passage. So the poor receive good news. The captives receive liberty. The blind receive sight. The oppressed receive liberty. And everyone in the midst of a suffering world sees the Lord's favor. There's a number of reversals in this passage. Reversals like this are one of the biggest themes in Luke's gospel. So if you read Luke's gospel... Look for this theme. Look for reversals. Sinners being declared righteous. Social outcasts being drawn in. One of the best examples of this theme of reversals in Luke's gospel comes from Luke chapter 1, when Mary, the mother of Jesus, hears this news that she is going to become pregnant with the Savior, And she goes and sees her cousin Elizabeth and finds this good news confirmed to her. And Mary sings one of the most brilliant songs ever composed. And we call it the Magnificat. But Mary sings this song. And I'm going to read it for you. And listen as we read it. This is an awesome Christmas, uh, Christmas passage. But as we read it, listen for those reversals. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done a great thing, has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Now listen to this part. Listen for reversals. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he sent away empty. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So Jesus came to reverse some things to put a stop to suffering, to spin this world around and turn it on its head. Jesus was coming to reverse some things. And reversal is good news because as we've pointed out, this world is broken. Some people like to say, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Well, this world is broke, so somebody's got to fix it. And that's what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to do something about all of the suffering and injustice in this world. And what is it that he's doing about it? Is Jesus just yet another political leader who's going to stand and make promises and say, I'm going to fix it all, and you guys are going to thank me for it. It's going to be great. Vote for me. Is he making big promises with no plans? No, Jesus is going to deal with the root issue. Jesus is not like a doctor who treats the symptoms. 
He's saying, what's really going on here? What's causing all of this? I've got to get to the bottom of it. And friends, our suffering, the suffering that we experience in this world, is a result of the sin that's in this world. That's not to say that anytime you're suffering, it's directly caused by your own sin. That's to say that the reason that there's suffering, the reason that there's injustice in this world, is because there's sin in this world. God created a perfect world that was free from suffering. There was no earthquakes. There were no mass shootings. There were no genocides. There was no ethnic cleansing. There was no racism. There was no poverty. There was no hunger. There was no blindness. There was no deafness. That was the perfect world that God created. But that perfect world was distorted and broken, not by a defect in God's design, but by our sin. Our sin. Because of our sin, as a result of our sin, the world has been cursed. Maybe you know the Christmas song, Joy to the World. And Joy to the World proclaims that Jesus came to make his blessings flow. How far? Far as the curse is found. Every thorn brought about by the curse, Jesus is turning into a fruit-bearing tree. Everything sad is coming untrue. Jesus came to deal with the sin that causes all suffering. And how did he do that? By taking it on to himself. That's what happened at the cross. Jesus took all of the curse from our sin and he suffered in our place. We've all deserved suffering because we've all rebelled against God. And Jesus takes the suffering off of your account, puts it onto himself. And that's why Jesus died on the cross. Suffering to end all suffering for his people. So that you wouldn't be separated from God anymore. Because if Jesus paid the price, that doesn't just mean that eventually this world is going to be fixed. And it will be fixed. You can count on Jesus to keep his promise to reverse all suffering. But also, you get God. Our suffering hasn't just broken this world, it's broken our relationship with God. And Jesus came to reverse it, to fix it, to make things right. And you might say today, well, that sounds, that sounds great, that Jesus is coming to make all things new. But he came a long time ago, and it sure doesn't look like things are doing too hot. Prophecy in the Bible usually has two fulfillments. So a prediction in the Bible about a future event usually has two fulfillments. It's kind of like installments where you get a foretaste of God's full mercy and deliverance and then you get another installment of it that's bigger and better and and you say that's the real thing. And so this prophecy about Isaiah It had a near fulfillment that Jesus came to die for sinners and rise again so that anyone who looks at him in faith can be saved. And it also has a far fulfillment. Jesus is coming back again. And at that time, all suffering on this world will end. 
Jesus will bring his people to a new, recreated world where there is no suffering. Now, not everyone will be a part of that world. But we'll get to that in a moment. What I want you to think about right now is, where are you at in this suffering and in Jesus' resolve to fix this suffering? Have you placed your faith in him? Are you trusting in him to set you free? And if you are, then what are you doing to respond to the brokenness in this world? What should we do when we see injustice in the world? Should we just try to fix it? You know, we all love that guy. You know, the person who you bring a problem to and and he immediately just says, okay, well, here's what you got to do. You just got to fix this. And you're like, I just wanted to like cry for a minute. Like stop trying to fix all my problems. So should we just try to be that guy all the time? Should we just try to fix all the brokenness in the world? No, because we can't. We're powerless to. Instead, we look to Christ who is the servant of the Lord, who can bring good news to the poor, who can proclaim liberty to the captives, who can even recover sight to the blind. We look to Christ. Friends, what broken people and broken communities need in our world is the hope of Christ, and so that's what we need to bring to them. Again, we don't want to treat symptoms. We want to get to the root cause, which is that sin has separated us from God and sent this world into a spiral of disaster. And yet, at the same time, we are called to be like Christ, who came to do something about injustice and suffering. And so we, too, ought to fight and work to end injustice and resolve suffering for people. And that's why we prioritize selfless service as a value in our church. That's why we have a a Love the District team that goes and serves at the Capitol Hill Pregnancy Center once a week. You can be a part of that team if you're interested. Come and talk to me or, or Stephanie Stover, who leads that team, before you leave today. And we want to spin up more and more of those teams because there's a lot of suffering in this world. So if there's a need that you see in this city that you want to help fight and help resolve suffering for people, then let's start a team together. Let's get you started. And what did Jesus come for? He came to put a stop to unjust suffering forever. And who did he come for? It's the second question we want to answer. Who did Jesus come for? He came for anyone who would believe. Indiscriminately. Anyone who would believe. Verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Jesus' words were gracious. They were good news. They were kind. He was saying, this suffering that you're experiencing, I see it, I sympathize with it, I'm doing something about it. And so everybody's comforted. But then some rabble-rousers start to get in the crowd. Some people start to have some strange thoughts. And they say, hang hang on a second. Don't I know you from somewhere? Is not this Joseph's son? Can he really do all this great stuff that he's promising to do? I mean, like, I remember this guy when he was a baby. This is Jesus' hometown, remember. And Jesus said to them, doubtless, you will quote this this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. It's a common saying in Jesus' day. Like, ah, you think you're so high and mighty? You can't even fix yourself. What we've heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. 
So the people in Nazareth, Jesus' hometown, have been hearing some rumors about this Jesus. So he's going to Capernaum and he's healing people. Sick people are getting up and feeling better. Blind people are opening their eyes and seeing demons are being cast out. And they're saying, all right, all right, Jesus, you talk a lot. Let's see something. See some action. Where's the miracles at? What does Jesus do? Now, if I was in Jesus' shoes, I would like put on a little magic show. I'd like light the place on fire and then put it out and be like, ha, look at you guys. But I'm not Jesus. He's better than me. And what does he do? Verse 24. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Jesus hears it. He doesn't even hear their objection. He just predicts it. He knows it. But he understands their objection. And he says, I'm not going to answer that. I don't jump when you say hop. No prophet is acceptable in his hometown. He gives that general principle. And then he applies it to some specific situations from Israel's past. Verse 25. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. Elijah, famous prophet from Israel's past, from the Old Testament. You can read about him in 1 Kings. There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. So, like I said, Elijah's a famous prophet in the Old Testament. He often, he's such a world-renowned prophet that he often stands as a representative for all of the prophets. Sometimes you would just say, Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. And so Elijah is this great, famous prophet. And one of the most famous things that he did was in light of the king's rebellion against God, Elijah said, or God said through Elijah, there will be no rain until Elijah says something, until Elijah says so. And so that's what it means when it says the heavens were shut up for three years and six months. There was no rain. Now, friends, if there's no rain... What do they do? They go to the grocery store to get their food? No, there's no food. And so Israel is sent into this season of pain and famine. They can't grow food. And so what does Elijah do about this? Verse 26, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. There's many widows in Israel. And Elijah leaves Israel and he goes to Sidon. You can read this story in 1 Kings 17. I'd encourage you to do that this afternoon. And in that story, you see this incredible story of a Gentile widow who trusted God to provide. And he did in miraculous ways. And he did it through Elijah. And so while all of... Israel is languishing. The famous prophet who got us into this mess is off in another country helping one of their disgusting enemies. No prophet's acceptable in his hometown. Elijah had to leave to find someone who trusted in God. Verse 27. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. Elisha 
was the successor and protege of Elijah. And in, in this story from 2 Kings chapter 5, it's a really incredible story that's often overlooked. Go and read that this afternoon. But Naaman was a military commander for Aram, which was one of Israel's most fiercest enemies and deadliest oppressors in this day. And so again, Israel is in a time of suffering, and Elisha leaves Israel, and he doesn't just help a foreigner, he helps their enemy, not just their enemy, but he helps one of their military commanders. And Naaman was healed, even though he didn't understand God's plan, And as a result of his healing, he turned to worship the true and living God alone. So what's the point of all these stories? I was like, well, those are interesting stories. These prophets bringing about calamity and then leaving while their hometowns were torched and they go and help other people. Is that a betrayal? No. In the days of the prophets, Israel was not entitled to relief just because they were the children of Abraham. And in Jesus' day, Nazareth was not entitled to relief just because they were Jesus' hometown. They weren't entitled to see some miracles just because they had seen Jesus when he was a boy. And so what's the difference? The difference between someone who receives healing from Jesus and someone who doesn't receive healing from Jesus is faith. Not ethnicity, not religious performance, not good works. The difference between someone who receives help from Jesus and someone who doesn't is faith. Friends, it's not enough that your parents had faith, that your parents had some religious background. You need to be reconciled to Christ. You need to be made right with God. Nothing can save you apart from your personal faith in Jesus. And he's made clear in this passage that he is under no obligation to save everyone. And you also see here a crucial theme that you see throughout the Bible that the Israelites reject God's help. They reject God's grace. They don't trust in God. And God's grace flows to the nations. It flows outside of Israel. And this was always God's plan because this has always been God's heart, that he would be worshipped not just by Israel, but by Naaman the Syrian and the widow in Zarephath and every tribe and every tongue and every nation. God longs and even demands for people from every tribe and tongue and nation to worship him. And that's why we care so much about missions. Friends, some people say, well, we don't need to worry about missions because there's enough work to do here. And yes, there is a lot of work to do here, but that wasn't Jesus' response. When he saw all the work that was to be done in Nazareth, he didn't say, man, I really got to camp out here. These guys are crazy. These guys don't understand at all. He didn't say that. He actually left, and he said, there's work to be done elsewhere. And the Bible makes clear that God's grace will go to the nations. God has his people all over. There are Naaman the Syrians and Zarephath widows in the world today, people who live in places with no access to the gospel of Christ, who we need to go and tell them about it. 
God has his people all over and we need to seek them. We need to do something about it. Maybe if you want to grow your heart, grow your love for God's heart for the nations, maybe one thing you could do is read a missionary biography in the next year. Maybe you could ask for one for Christmas from a friend or a loved one. Let me give you two recommendations. Maybe you could read Amy Carmichael by Ian Murray or Hudson Taylor by Vance Christie. This sponsored message, but no, I'm just kidding. Um, What did Jesus come for? He came to put a stop to unjust suffering forever. Who did Jesus come for? He came for anyone who would believe indiscriminately. Third question I want to ask today is how will we respond? Friends, we must trust in Christ totally, knowing that not everyone will. Verse 28. And when they heard these things, these things as in God's grace going to the Gentiles, God being under no obligation to help you, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. So these people are furious. These are church folks. And they're hearing the sermon and they're saying, I'm not dealing with that. I'm angry. Come on, preacher, I'm going to get you. And they rose up and they drove him out of town. And they brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built. You could Google it. Mount Precipice, still in Nazareth today. It's a massive mountain. I would not want to be tossed off of it. And Jesus is backed up to the edge of the cliff and the crowd is about to throw him off and he's mercifully delivered. Verse 30, passing through their midst, he went away. Friends, that was the message of Jesus. That would be like if you guys stormed the the front of the room right now and said, we're going to go to the top of the Washington Monument. We're throwing you off. It's done. That was the visceral negative response that Jesus' message received in Nazareth. A message that I would remind you, Nazareth themselves summarized in verse 22 as gracious words. Jesus' message was unpopular, and it's still unpopular today. But friends, when when some of us hear a word like that, that Jesus' message is unpopular, and we need to stand firm, we often have this reaction that we ought to be culture warriors. We ought to go win the culture and convince everyone else that they're wrong about social issues. And while that's important, and we want to defend Biblical values don't rush to be a culture warrior before you seek to pull the log out of the culture's eyes, seek to pull the speck out of your own heart. Friends, how do you respond? How will we respond when the Bible prohibits something that you love? When that happens, we need to believe that we are wrong. We need to be willing to change our minds because Christ is the king, not us. And this passage paints a picture of the urgency of getting right with God through Christ. Because of our sin, we are not God's friends. We are God's enemies. We read earlier in the service from Isaiah 12, you were angry with me. God, has, God is angry with you justly, rightly, because you've sinned against him. 
Because there's been times when we've heard prohibitions from God's word or in our own conscience, and we've ignored them. Friends, that's just like throwing Jesus off the cliff of Nazareth. Like I said, prophecy in the Old Testament, predictions in the Old Testament typically have two fulfillments. They have a near fulfillment and they have a far fulfillment. And Jesus did come to proclaim liberty to the captives, like Isaiah 61 says. But he's coming back. Christ came once to save and he's coming back again to judge. Let's read. Let's go right to the source. Isaiah 61, the passage that Jesus had been reading that day. I'm going to read Isaiah 61. You follow along in your Bibles in Luke chapter 4. See if it's the same. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's where Jesus stopped. That's not where Isaiah stopped. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God. So the prophecy in Isaiah keeps going. The prophecy in Isaiah makes clear that Christ came not just to proclaim salvation, but also to proclaim judgment. Now, Jesus isn't editing Isaiah. He's not saying, ah, you know, I don't like that judgment stuff. I'm going to do something else. He's not editing Isaiah. He's making clear that he's coming once the first time that we're reading about in Luke 4 that we celebrate at Christmas to bring salvation, and he will come again to bring judgment. For Isaiah, that's one event. The Messiah would come. The suffering servant would come. He's going to proclaim judgment and salvation. And we see that event unfolding over two comings of Christ. And Jesus leaves off that last part, not because he's trying to hide something, but because he's making clear the purpose for which he's coming right now to bring salvation. So friends, the question that I ask you today is, are you right with God? Because Christ is coming back to bring judgment. Don't count on your parents' faith. Don't count on your own religious observance. Don't count on your own good works. Don't count on your own sense of justice. Because we've sinned against God. And we need to be made right with him. And the only way for that to happen is by looking to Christ, crucified on our behalf and risen again. That's our only hope. And friends, for those of us that know Christ, the only possible response that we could have would be to give ourselves to making him known. Because judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. If you walked out on Gospel and Grub this afternoon and you saw somebody standing in the middle of Pennsylvania Avenue tying their shoes and you saw a car coming, you would get up and scream at them and say, get out of the road, somebody's about to kill you. And friends... We have a message that judgment is coming and people need to get out of the road before the van smashes them. They need to find shelter in Christ. Friends, I want to encourage you, as you make plans for the new year, I want to encourage you to make this central to your plans for the new year. What would it look like for you to make it your goal, your New Year's resolution, if you're that kind of person, to do the Know Jesus Bible study 
with at least one non-Christian before the end of next year. Make it your goal. Let me set you a benchmark. Make it your goal to ask at least one non-Christian to do that Bible study with you by the end of March. We need to give ourselves to this. And we need to give ourselves to God's work around the world, to supporting our missionaries who we just prayed for earlier, who we've sent. We need to give ourselves to God's cause, to knowing Jesus and making him known because the world is broken, suffering is real, and judgment is coming. The world is broken. And Christ came to save. So friends, let's give ourselves to his global cause. So that D.C. and Capitol Hill and 8th and I and Jabab and your neighborhood would know Christ.